0: Good morning. If you do have your Bibles, or maybe not in this church, other churches, I say if you have your devices, open up to Luke chapter 8. We'll be in verses 26 through 39 today. Uh, Glad to be back. Uh, I was thinking, so when I'm gone from here, I'm either at A&M or I have another church, but I always feel like this is the church home for me. It's really strange because I haven't been here that long. I didn't grow up here, but y'all are different, and I just want y'all to know that. Some of you are really different. Yeah. <laughs> I do mean that in the best way, but I do mean it in a special way, too. I'll be careful. <laughs> Very. <laughs> all right. Uh, Glad Heston, preached last week on the Living Bread. Appreciate him. He's not here for me to thank him, but I'll thank him anyways. We're kind of looking at some of these particular stories in Jesus' ministry and all the Gospels. We're mostly looking at John because there's a lot of one-on-one things going on there, but we're going to look through all of them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's why I said today we'll be in Luke. When you look at these stories and these certain encounters that Jesus has, whether they're a miracle or they're a healing, or today it's a deliverance from a demonic activity, there is a bigger truth behind each miracle and behind each healing, behind each deliverance. It's not just Jesus has the power to heal, to deliver. It's showing you something that's much bigger than that. And so... Building up to Holy Week and building up to Easter, we're looking at his encounters with all kinds of people, with rich people, with poor people, with religious people, with the non-religious people, with the politicians, with the, the carpenters and the and the tent makers and the homemakers, everybody. And we want to ask one question leading up to Easter, and on Easter, I plan to preach, I'm going to ask the question, if Jesus is who he says he is, because when he talks with these people one-on-one, he proclaims himself to be somebody, if he is that somebody, what value does that hold in this world? Okay. And so, who is he? Well, we've looked at he is rest. He is the great fisher who calls us to be fishermen. He calls, he's the, he's the skeptic see, skeptic seeker. He's the living water and he's the living bread. And today, I want to look at how Jesus is a chain breaker and he's a healer and he's a conqueror of darkness and that he is, that God is with the haunted in this world too. So, four things to look at today. You know, I got to have my four, my three or four things. It helps me walk through. The sermon helps you walk through the lesson, and the four things are the reality of Satan, the disturbance of Satan, but also the reality of Jesus, and then the disturbance of Jesus. Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. For many a time it had seized him, and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. But now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them the permission. The demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. And when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. And then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found that this man had gone from these demons to sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told him how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much good God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming through the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word of God that gives us all that we need, Lord. I ask that you bless this specific time now Um, in a specific topic today that is a little weary, that is that is strange, that is weird, and that has to deal with forces that are powerful and that are evil and that are much stronger than we are by ourselves, God. So I ask for a protection over this church building and over each person in this room as we explore a spiritually touchy topic, God. Thank you, God, for all that you have done and for blessing us so richly. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So. I say it's a touchy topic spiritually because this is something most Christians do not get in their mind to be real. Uh, there is a reality of Satan, and that's what I have to address first. If I'm going to talk about this passage, I have to knock the big elephant out of the way, okay? I tell Linda earlier, there's a reason I did not have slides today, because I've actually seen Tyler preach on the same topic, and I've seen his slides not work. I've actually seen back home, uh, preaching on this topic, I've seen ele- electricity go off midday, just teaching on this topic. because And I want to tell you, I'm not saying that every instance is related to superstition or related to the supernatural. But, for example, I didn't have my slides today because I said I did not want to fight with the tech demons. But real demons, too, I don't know. I, they, they can infiltrate, and that's what we're going to get into today. But what I want to say, what I believe, is I believe there is a creator God, and I believe that the Bible says that there is a heaven and a hell and that there is a seen world, there is an unseen world, there are angels, and then there are demons, and there is a devil who is an accuser, who is a deceiver, who is a liar, who is a thief, and who is a destroyer of the world. And I want to tell you that Jesus did too. Most people, historians and philosophers, and even many Christians today, say that Jesus thought about these demons in a way because he he was a man of his time. He didn't have modern science or contemporary education to tell him that there were certain diseases you could get in your mind. Okay. Jesus was not a man of his time. He was a man of conviction. And I want to tell you that Moses, the prophets, and the gospel writers believed this too. And they also acknowledged that there were real diseases, there were real madness, there was, there was schizophrenia, there were things that could control your mind that had nothing to do with the supernatural. But they did say sometimes there was. And in the ancient world, they believed in multiple possibilities. Yes, it could be a sickness. Equally so, they recognize maybe there's something bigger than just a sickness or mental disease or mental disorder. They believe that there were demons and there were supernatural powers. And so when the Bible gets weird, though, a lot of Christians like to, and especially the world overall, likes to cut pieces out of the Bible. When the Bible gets, quote-unquote, woo-woo, okay, weird, strange, creepy. I'll give you an example. Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, he was not a Christian, by the way. He was a deist. He believed that there was a God. He did not believe necessarily in the Christian God. But one thing, one of his projects in life for him to do, and he did up, end up accomplishing it after his presidency, he took the Bible, he took the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he cut and pasted it. And he cut out every supernatural event and every miracle to make a Bible that fit his own personal theology because he didn't believe in all that woo-woo strange nonsense. To be honest, if you were to cut out all the supernatural and the miracles out of the Bible, I don't know if you have a Bible left, because the entire book is woo-woo, weird, and supernatural. Uh, It really is. We're talking about a God of the universe, something that is supernatural and beyond our plane of existence. So the whole thing, naturally, is supernatural. Okay, I don't know what he's left with. Anyways... But this contemporary and educated and intellectual world says that you cannot believe that. It says, you strange religious people, you cannot believe that. Don't you know that we have modern science and that we have contemporary education? And what's funny is the world, although less nowadays, but the world will still say that there is such thing as good and evil, right, and wrong, and they'll say that, but they'll say that all of that is based upon man's biology. That's part of the evolutionary code, Okay. We do things certain, certain things right, we do certain things wrong, and it's all just ultimately a part of who we are. It's very natural, not supernatural. And so we think all the poverty in the world and all the wars in the world and all the genocide and injustice and racism and this and that is all self-induced. It's just, it just naturally started with us. It originated with us, which is partially true in a biblical way, but not totally, Okay. But they'll tell you that all these strange things that happen in the world, all these dark things that happen in the world, are not the result of some silly supernatural villain archetype, a.k.a. Satan. In the end, though, they do think that all the darkness and all this evil in the world—war, injustice, poverty, racism— all of these dark things they think are manageable and they think they are controllable by the human mind and by science and by education. And my first question I ask is, why aren't things getting better then, right? If we have modern science and technology and if there is no weird beyond beyond what we can see and touch, why aren't things getting better? Because there's more homicides nowadays than, there, nowadays than there ever has been. In the last hundred years, there's been 250 million deaths caused by wars. Eighty years ago, an entire nation decided to slaughter 8 million Jews. There is more hunger. There is more slavery than ever. There's more child sex trafficking than ever. And in this country ourselves, there are more babies slaughtered in their mother's wombs than there ever has been. Okay? And we think we can solve our issues on our own because we think there are problems on our own. But have we ever thought that maybe, just maybe, there's something going on that we cannot totally analyze, that we cannot totally test or see or touch or feel? Have we thought about the reality that in this world we cannot save our own world because there are cosmic, interdimensional, dark forces that are playing with this world? Okay, There is a false reality, or rather an illusion, and then there's a true reality in this fight over whether the supernatural is we- real or not. And this comes to a head in Luke chapter 8. I think it's so cool. See, what we call demonic possession, the world will often call chemical imbalance. Seriously. Well, that person just lost their mind all of a sudden for no reason because they have some strange chemical imbalance. And oftentimes, they actually find their brain is actually perfectly fine. And then they're left with the question of, well, what's wrong now? But there are other things going on. We chalk up everything to a disease or to a disorder. All schizophrenia and depression and suicide and homicide and mental disorders are all purely natural. And I won't lie, some of those things are purely natural. And a lot of times when people go crazy, it is purely natural. It can be a chemical imbalance, but not all the time. Jesus believed in mental illness. Okay, he believed in madness and he believed in trauma. And he, just like the body can hurt, he, he did believe the mind could be hurt too. And he would say that not everything is supernatural. Because one dangerous thing to believe is to believe that everything is supernatural, Okay, to be so superstitious. That's equally as dangerous as to believe that nothing is superstitious or supernatural. But Jesus did believe in the devil, and he did believe in demons, and he encountered Satan himself. And many times this result to spiritual powers that move in the shadows of our time-space reality is what affects our lives today. And I want to realize or bring to the realization to you, if we fail to realize the reality of Satan, the reality that there are dark forces in this world, principalities and rulers and authorities that are controlling and dictating things in our society and in our culture, we can never realize the reality of Jesus either, okay? It's a two-in-one combo. You can't have Jesus without demons. You can't have God without Satan. They're together, okay? I'll say that uh, this too just kind of skipping over my notes a little bit. You cannot understand the reality of Jesus otherwise, right? You want to understand his mission? You got to understand Satan. You want to understand that he has come to destroy the domain of darkness, you must understand that there is a real, tangible or intangible domain of darkness. In Genesis chapter 3, God's first promise is that I will stamp I will stamp on the head of the serpent. Genesis chapter 3. You can't understand that if you don't believe the serpent is real, okay? You cannot believe that Jesus has come to conquer death unless you believe that death and Satan and sin are real. So why are there so many demonic encounters in Jesus' ministry? Because we see this all the time. This is not the only instance in this passage where we see this. We see this throughout the Gospels and throughout all the Scriptures, and I want to tell you why. I I think the most reasonable explanation is because there's this cosmic wall between both worlds, the unseen world and the seen world. So naturally, when Jesus comes into the world and the ministry of Jesus is at its height, whose other ministry is going to be at its height? Satan's, right? He's got to counterattack Jesus. So naturally, there's going to be a lot of really weird supernatural things going on in his ministry. I was listening to a sermon by one guy, and he said, "...in other words, all hell breaks loose." When Jesus comes into the world, Satan is summoning all his powers to battle. So this is where we first see the manifested reality of Satan is in this passage. And we see the devil and the demons and we see their power and their might. And that's what's so disturbing. It's just how powerful they are. So the disturbance of Satan. Before we can get into that, what was, you know, the pre- previous, cannot speak today. The previous passage before this passage, you know what it was? When Jesus calms and stills the storm. Okay, the disciples were put through a previously traumatic, terrifying event, okay, and actually said the most traumatic part of it, the most terrifying part of it, was not the storm itself. It was actually that there was this guy who had the power to make it all stop, and it scared them out of their britches, and I'm sure they could not wait until they pulled back up to shore, and they're thinking, thank God we're going back to shore. Everything's going to get normal again, but if you're with Jesus, nothing's ever normal. And so they pull up to the shore, and it only gets worse because this guy just happens to attract all the weird stuff in the world. I guess it's super funny. It says, as Jesus was climbing out of the boat, this is verse 27. As Jesus was climbing out of the boat, a man who was possessed by demons came out to meet him. And for a long time, he had been homeless and naked, living in the tombs outside the town. As soon as he saw Jesus, he shrieked, he fell down in front of him, and then he screamed, Why are you interfering with me or torturing me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Please, I beg you, do not torture me. For Jesus had already commanded the evil spirit to come out of him. The spirit had often taken control of the man, and even when he was placed under guard and put in chains and in shackles, All he did was break them, and he rushed out into the wilderness completely under the demon's power. I want you to see the influence of of the demonic realm here. There is a supernatural strength that often comes with it. He breaks all bonds. He breaks all chains. Men cannot control him. I'm sure if you stick 30 guys on this guy, the big, strong Roman soldiers, they could not get a hold of this guy. They could not throw him in a prison because he'd bust loose, because he has strength that is not his own. We see him self-destructing himself. I said he's cutting at himself. He's screaming in the night. He has this uncontrollable, erratic behavior. He's he's living naked in the desert. He's living in graves. He's sleeping with men who are only bones. So he's really nothing more than an animal. Okay. So this disturbance, the disturbance, is, or I want to ask, what leads to this disturbance? What leads to moments like this? What leads to demonic possession? What leads to the roads of bondage? Demonic possession ultimately is when a spiritual demonic spirit resides in a physical body, and it tries to exhibit its own personality and its own behavior in the human host. It's mostly like a parasite. A parasite takes control of the host. That's what's going on here, and there are many roads right here. We don't know the particulars of this man, but I want to guarantee you it started with bit-by-bit compromises to darkness and a deeper sinking into darkness, okay? Practically, I think this needs to be addressed too. This is something I've tried to be familiar with. There's a lot of things that can lead to demonic possession. If you're a Christian, you're fine. You have the Holy Spirit. So an unclean spirit cannot dwell within you. But if you're not a Christian, there are multiple ways. Overall, I believe that ongoing sin makes it a possibility. But there are more practical ongoing sins that make this a super possibility. And I'll just go ahead and list some of them off for you. This is fun for me, so I'm just going to list them. I think, I think it's cool to be aware of these things. And I've seen these things play out in the lives of those around us I want to tell you they're very real Uh, fortune telling occultic games like the Ouija board you're thinking no way little Hasbro game I can buy at Walmart I'm dead serious I have not found one person who did not say that that thing actually worked to do what it promised to do seriously really strange right spiritism tarot cards new-age meditations so nowadays there's new-age religion where it says just open up your mind sit at peace don't do anything. Don't think about anything. What you're doing right there is you're actually opening up your mind for something else to come in. Uh, other things. Drugs, of course. Horn. Uh, magic. Bible talks about magic all the time. It's very real. And I want to tell you that there are supernatural interactions that you can participate in if you give yourself over to that. But anyways, I, had, I don't know why I had to list them, but I had to. But like an overall... Ongoing sin can lead to demonic possession. That's what happened to this man. Why do people do these things though? Why do people participate in these activities? It's because they do work and they work for a little while, but ultimately what you do is you're opening a door. In a sense, you're opening a portal from one world into the another, and you're saying, Come in. You're inviting things in when you're living an ongoing sin. So it's no surprise that this man has lived the certain behavioral lifestyle that this is happened to him. And now he's suffering because of it. But I want to look at why do demons attack next. So number one reason why demons attack is because they hate God, clearly. Number two reason is they hate you. So they hate God. So they want to vandalize God's creation. And as Satan's goal is, his ultimate goal is to undo whatever God has done. Number two reason is they hate you. And they hate the fact that you are a Mago Dei. They hate the fact that you are created in the image of God, and so they want, to, they want to destroy that. They want to mar, and they want to distort, and they want to muddy that image of God that you're made in. God wants your best, but they want you to suffer and die and be destroyed from the inside out. And the truth is, and the disturbance is, is that these attacks are too much to overcome on our own, with our own human ability. I talked about wars and genocide and injustice. I do believe things like that can be under the influence the interfering of Satan this happens more practically in the sense of when a man himself is taken over by Satan like I said so there's a deeper meaning though here there's a true reality there's something there's a cosmic eternal reality going on here I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the sermon that, that these encounters with Jesus these miracles and these healings and these deliverances are always more than just healings and miracles and deliverances each is unique And each represents a certain spiritual truth that we have to know. Each has a cosmic meaning. We talked in a Bible class about pictures. There are pictures here that the Scripture doesn't necessarily enlighten about, but it's trying to tell us through a picture. The picture of the demoniac is this. The cosmic disturbance of Satan is this. The power of darkness, the possession of evil. What ultimately is going on here is it's trying to show a representation of humanity. You understand what I'm saying? A representation of humanity, is trying to tell you that the human race is enslaved, that it is chained in darkness, that it is ruled by a dark prince, and that it is an inescapable prison. Nakedness. What does nakedness remind you of in the Bible? The very beginning, Genesis chapter three. Adam and Eve were naked, and they hid their nakedness from God. This man is naked, and he's hiding himself from society. He is trying to cloak himself in darkness and he's naked before God in his sin. He's living in the tombs, representing that he's cut off from society. He's living in a place of rot and decay and death. He's cut off from life, humanity, and he's cutting and he's tearing at himself. What is humanity doing every day if not cutting and tearing himself apart through war, through everything else, through our sin, through the harm we inflict on our own bodies and our own souls and our own spirits when we are enslaved to sin? Very practical, the man, yes he's demon possessed but I think it's trying to show us something greater about jesus's ministry. It has to be, so what happened to this man is he gave himself to what he thought would free him. People think sin will give me this satisfaction this it'll give me this abundance of life it'll give me this 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 i'll be free from the religion, I'll be free from oppression, I'll be free from God, that way I can live my life the way I want to. The illusion, or the fact that that is illusion, because really you are handing yourself into deeper chains. And that's what has happened to this man, because God was not his absolute in life, and the devil wasn't, but he didn't even know it. And he was not a child of God, but he was a child of the devil, whether he knew it or not. You see, you play cards with the God, or you play cards with the devil. One saves you, one gives you what you truly want, one cheats you and kills you, okay? Satan is real, and there are legions of demons. And the disturbance and the terror and the trauma about all of this that the disciples are freaking out over is not necessarily that they are real, and it's not necessarily that they are many. It's because these spiritual forces, our darkness, are actually far more powerful and far more cunning and far more creative than we dare to imagine, okay? And the power of evil is absolutely destroying society from its inside out. And that's been the devil's mission since day one. It's been to undo what God has done. And he convinced Adam and Eve that God wasn't going to be good enough for them. He wasn't going to be fun enough for them. He wasn't going to be good enough for them. I already said, he wasn't going to be enough for them. And they believed it. And they were handed over to the serpent. And they believed the serpent and said, The devil has an agenda, the devil has a mission, and the devil has a gospel too. But thank God, our God also has a counter agenda and a counter mission, and a, uh, a a true gospel that is a reality as well. So the reality of Jesus, verse twenty-eight. Why are you interfering with me, Jesus? Interfering. I think that's interesting. I don't know what what does your translation say, Pete? Does it say interfering? Yeah. Why are you interfering with me, Jesus? I don't. know, I think that's a strange word. Tor- Torture. I don't. I don't know if this is the NIV or the NLT, but it's saying interfering. I prefer the word torturing. It says, why are you torturing with me or torturing me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Please, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already commanded the evil spirit to come out of And Jesus demanded, what is your name? I'm skipping through some lines here. He said, legion, he replied, for he was filled with many demons. And the demons kept begging Jesus not to send them into the bottomless pit. And there happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. And the demons begged him to let them enter into the pigs. And so Jesus gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man, they entered the pigs, and the entire herd of pigs plunged off a cliff into the sea. Only in the reality, I think this is funny. You may notice something in this passage. I want you to notice it. That's, I guess that's why I'm preaching it to you. But notice the reality in the disturbance of darkness, or only in the reality in the disturbance of darkness can you actually see the reality of the light. I think this is really cool how Jesus decides to reveal himself to us through the scriptures. He doesn't say it himself, Son of the Most High God. He has the demons declare that he is the Son of the Most High God, which is really peculiar, peculiar because this is his archenemy, but they bow down in submission even to him. Not as Lord necessarily, but they recognize that they are powerless before him. But James James. The epistle writer James writes the same thing. He says, even the demons believe and they shudder. These demons are literally, their knees are shaking before Jesus (laughs) because his powerful was more immense and more eternal, cosmically greater than even theirs, okay? And these powerful cosmic entities, the destroyers of humanity, who are more cunning and crafty and oppressive than we even are, are at a loss, because they've met the seed of the woman who was meant to crush the serpent, as promised in Genesis chapter 3. And they fear that their time has come to an end. And so it's incredible. It's awesome. The destroyers of humanity, the principalities of darkness, they are now in terror. And they are now in humiliation. And now they have lost. And so they're conquered, they're retreating, and they're stomped out. And what we see here is that the light is breaking through the darkness John in his gospel writes that the darkness cannot overcome this light, and we get a literal picture in this scene. They can't even put up a fight. Ah, where are Anyways, quick question, uh, in case you're wondering. I'll go ahead and address this. Why doesn't he send them into the abyss and into the pigs? Here's why I think. He's not answering their requests, because he wants to grant them a little grace. God is not graceful to evil. I want to tell you it's because he's working on his own timeline, Right? Do you agree with me? What does Jesus promise at the end of the age? He says, I'll throw you into the abyss, but the time has not come yet. So he lets them retreat. He wins a battle, but he says the war is to be won later. So in case you were wondering about that, a lot of people have doubts about that passage. But it's ultimately because their ultimate defeat was not so far away after all. Back to the reality of Jesus, though is that the identity of the proclaimed Messiah is made known to the world. The God of the universe has become a man, and the power of Jesus displayed in the grandeur of the Almighty. We see here is only the cosmic God could conquer the cosmic darkness. I think it's really interesting, if you look at this passage, you see the God who created the cosmos, the creation, by a word, says, by a word, he crushes the cosmic forces of darkness. His at a word the man was healed. He said, Come out of the demons and they were gone. He didn't perform this three hour exorcism. At the word, they were defeated. And I want to tell you as there was a picture of Satan, there's a picture of demonic possession. There's a picture of Jesus' deliverance that I want you to see too. And it's more than a miracle, and it's more than a deliverance, and it's more than just a spiritual healing. And I think it starts with the previous passage when he steals the seas and he comes on to shore. Christ the Conqueror lands on the enemy's shores, and he comes with his sword, and he slays the dragon. Okay? That's really the picture he's trying to get you here. Jesus lands on the the opposing enemy's territory, and he comes, and he, he gains it. He takes it over. The God of the universe broke into our world. He landed on our shores, and he comes to conquer, and he comes to cure. Because humanity is enslaved, but he wants to break the chains. The world is ruled by a darkness, but he's come to rebel against that tyranny. And what he does is he comes to set those captives, those prisoners free from the power of sin, and he pours his light into their minds and into their souls, and even with this man into his body. Humanity is naked, but just as in the garden, what does God do? He clothes humanity, just as he did Adam and Eve. The world is a tomb, it's a land of death, but as promised in the beginning too, he says, I'm going to restore the tomb, I'm going to restore a graveyard into paradise for my people. Mankind cuts and tears and cries and destroys himself. He binds up the wounds, he heals the scars, and he gives life to dead, rotting people. And that's the gospel, right? That's the root. The, the reality of Jesus is this gospel that God becomes one of us. He lands on the enemy's shores and he brings out a sword and he comes to conquer and he destroys the enemy. And the enemy is not necessarily Rome. The enemy is not necessarily world injustice. The enemy is not necessarily poverty and war. It's actually something that's at the root of all those things. And he destroys the root of all those things first. He destroys the domain of darkness that has infiltrated our world. And he doesn't do it as a great military ruler. He doesn't do it as a king or as an emperor or as a rich nobleman, but as a poor carpenter, carpenter, a lowly rabbi who has nothing, and as a suffering servant. And he doesn't even do it by living, but he does it by dying. Christ conquers death by his own death, because that's the only way for it to actually happen. He beats death through his own death and resurrection. Colossians 2 says that you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. A very literal enemy. He triumphs over them. He puts them to shame. He disarms them. He's not talking about humanity's guilt necessarily. He's not even talking all the way just about humanity's sin against God. He's talking about the source of humanity's sin against God. He's talking about the dark forces, the principalities of the earth. And it's this gospel that brings the revelation of Jesus to us. It's this gospel that brings reconciliation to men. It brings restoration to a broken and fallen world, right? And so what do we see What do we see next? Verse 35 says, Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid, and those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Back to the man, more or less away from the picture, because I still think it's important to look at the man. We have to look at the man to understand the picture. This is very individual. This is very personal. I want you to know that. The haunted wanderer is now found at home because Jesus met him, because Jesus found him, not because he found Jesus. He may have ran to Jesus, but Jesus had it in his mind to land on his shores the whole time, okay? He was restless, but now he's sitting at Jesus' feet. He was naked, but now he's dressed in Jesus' righteousness. His mind was surrendered to legions of demons, but now his mind is at perfect peace, and he's 100% healed. And the message to you, like I said, is personal. The message to you is unique. And it's saying that none are beyond reach. This man has legions of demons. you know what legion means? It means 6,000 troops. It doesn't mean there were 6,000 demons, but there was a whole host, a whole army that was in this man. And Jesus, at the word, got rid of them all in an instant. He's trying to tell you that too. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. The man was healed because of what Jesus was going to do. I think that's really cool. Jesus does something in the past in light of what he does in the future. All right? And Satan and the demons and the darkness and the death, the destruction of those things has become an absolute reality. But the greater reality... Okay, I think I rephrased that wrong. It's an absolute reality that death and Satan exists, right? That the demons exist. But the greater reality is that Jesus won. Jesus is winning and Jesus will win, as the Book of Revelation tells us. And the reality of Satan does bring a disturbance, and I want to tell you that the reality of Jesus does too. I could end the sermon right here because I preached the gospel and I've done the cool little part. You know, he's freed a man. All right, let's end. Let's go home. Uh, one last part to cover here, though, and that's the disturbance of Jesus. <laughs> Satan's real; he's disturbing. Jesus is real. I want to tell you, Jesus is disturbing too. Verse thirty-five says they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And it says, all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to leave from them. And they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat as they wanted, and he returned to where it came from. Why is the town disturbed by this wonderful act? This guy just healed a guy. He just killed this guy's problems that he's had for his whole life. And they're sitting here, leave, go. I'll tell you why. It's very it's actually super practical. There's a there's a lighter meaning, there's a deeper meaning. Like I said, Jesus always seems to make somebody upset. Okay. Normally it's the Jews, but this time it's the Gentiles. I tell you why, it's because he really did just disrupt their economy. For all you ag guys out there, Jesus just got rid of all their pigs, so no wonder they're saying, You just got rid of our food. You just got rid of our income source. Can you go? So I get that. <laughs> But he's also removed a constant from their life. He has changed something that has been constant, and that's the demoniac. They always had somebody to look down upon. They always had someone to compare themselves to and to think, well, at least I'm better. And he removes it all. And what I want to tell you is when you encounter the risen Christ, when you encounter Jesus, it is an absolute truth that he will disrupt your life one way or another. Your peace of quiet living turns into an exhilarating adventure. Okay? He disrupts Sabbath rules. We looked at that week one. He disrupts fishing trips, John 2. He disrupts changeless religi- religious ritual, John 3. Uh, with the Samaritan woman, he disrupts noontime chores. He disrupts exciting cultural movements. He disrupts pig farming. He disrupts careers and finances. He disrupts military agendas, and he disrupts politics. Take Jesus into D.C. DC. Take Jesus into Hollywood. Take him into your workplace. You'll notice very quick that he tries to, they try to kick him out because the world doesn't like him, because the world prefers its darkness more, okay? But Jesus says, I'm coming anyway, and he disrupts nations, and he disrupts peoples, and he disrupts entire societies, he disrupts world history, and he disrupts every cosmic barrier between him and the world, the God of heaven coming into the world that is the earth. He disrupts unseen agendas of Satan, He disrupts the interdimensional mission of hell. He disrupts the kingdom of darkness, and he disrupts Satan's dominion. And he don't only just disrupts that, he absolutely destroys it. He decimates it. It goes off a cliff. That's the picture of the pigs. The kingdom of the devil has crashed and burned, and it is gone. So the world around this man is absolutely disturbed, right? People love the darkness. They hate the light because they're roaming in darkness, and they think the darkness has freedom. Jesus says... You're not free, though. But they say, but yes, I am. Well, Jesus says, well, I'm going to show you. I'm going to disturb you into revealing the truth that you are not free, that you are oppressed by an enemy. And that disturbs people, okay? He tries to tell them the truth that there are other chains surrounding you that you don't even know about. You are spiritually tied down in a way that you don't know about, and they're impossible to take off. And Jesus knows this, and it's why he's come, to reveal this to them, to restore them, and to reconcile them to God. All you've known is darkness. I want you to think about, you're in fifth grade, you're about to go to school, 6.30 in the morning. My mom used to come into my bedroom, she'd turn the light on, no advanced warning, just turn the light on, get up! Most disturbing thing possible when you're a fifth grader who does not want to go to school. And Jesus does the same thing. He comes to your room, he flips the light on, your eyes start trying to fix itself to the current light. I don't know how to say that. Anyways, it's disturbing, but that's what Jesus does. Weird little metaphor. I came up with that on the ad. That's just why I have notes, people, because that metaphor made almost no sense, but that's okay. But anyways, Jesus flips the light on and it hurts. And I got to ask you, as the people of God, right? How are you disturbed? There's a positive way to be disturbed, and then there's a negative way to be disturbed. Positive and negative disturbance. The negative is that the reality of Jesus disrupts your darkness, and you hate that, and you run away, and you hide in it, just like the demon-possessed man. And you get lost in deeper darkness, and you get lost in deeper ignorance, because you keep believing the original lie from the garden that you will be enslaved by God, that you will be unhappy with God, that you will be unsatisfied and unfilled with God. That was the the serpent's first statement. He says, God's not going to be enough for you. That's hell's illusion, but what is heaven's reality? Hell's illusion, but here's heaven's reality. Here's the positive. is that Jesus does disrupt your darkness, but you realize you need just that. And you run not away from him, but you run to him. What's funny is you finally found yourself clothed in forgiveness. You find yourself seated in his love, and as the man you find yourself and your mind, your own heart is corrected and cured. And that is an eternal truth. And the eternal truth is that you will actually be totally free. You'll have complete joy. You'll be satisfied and you'll be filled. The devil's whole mission is to go against that truth. That's what's happening in this world. And if you're positively disturbed, in summary, you'll be moved from possessed to purchased to proclaiming. What does this man do after he's saved? What does this man do after the demons are gone? Jesus tells him, go to the town, go to your family, go tell them. What does he do? He does it. The Samaritan woman, he says, go and tell people what the Lord has done for you, and she does it. That's what happens afterwards, okay? You say, I met the living God, and he changed my life. He disturbed me, but in the best way possible. And what happens after that is that the word of God spreads. Jesus' fame and Jesus' mission spreads through the entire countryside. So conclude: the truer reality and the greater disturbance is not that spiritual forces of hell are destroying a haunted man from the inside out. The more true and the more great disturbance is that the God of heaven is redeeming a haunted world from the inside out. Okay? It is vital to understand that the devil is real and that he is far stronger than all of us put together. But the truth, but that truth leads to this one, and that truth is this is that the Son of the Most High God, as claimed by the demons himself is far stronger than all the legions of hell put together. And that's what I want you to take away. Didn't know if I was going to end on this. It's it's a long sort of something poem, but I want to end on it anyway. There's a song by Bob Bennett called Man of the Tombs. I don't know if you've ever heard it. It's a contemporary worship song. It's not even that contemporary. It's back from the 80s, but it's a beautiful poem and picture of this exact story. So I want to read it to you. And I don't want you to understand how personal it is to me, but it should be personal to you as well. Man of the tombs, he lives in a place where no one goes. And he tears at himself and lives with a pain that no one knows. He counts himself dead among the living. He knows no mercy and no forgiving. And deep in the night he's driven to cry out loud. Can you hear him cry out loud? Man of the tombs, possessed by an unseen enemy, he breaks every chain and mistakes his freedom for being free. Shame and shamelessness equally there, like a random toss of a coin in the air. Man of the tombs, he's driven to cry out loud. He says this underneath this thing that I've become a fading memory of flesh and blood I curse the womb I bless the grave I've lost my heart I cannot be saved like those who fear me I'm afraid like those I've hurt I can feel pain naked now before my sin and these stones that cut against my skin Some try to touch me, but no one can, for man of the tombs I am. Down at the shoreline, two sets of footprints meet. One voice is screaming, but another voice begins to speak. In only a moment and in only a word, that evil departs like a thundering herd. Man of the tombs, he hears this cry out loud, and this cry says this, Underneath this thing that you've become, I see a man of flesh and blood. I give you life beyond the grave. I heal your heart. I come to save. No need to fear. Be not afraid. This man of sorrows knows your pain. I come to take away your sin and bear its marks upon my skin. When no one can touch you, still I can, for Son of God, I am. Dressed now and seated, clean in spirit and healthy of mind, man of the tombs, he begs to follow but must stay behind. He'll return to his family with stories to tell of mercy and madness, of heaven and hell. Man of the tombs, soon he will cry out loud. Underneath this thing I once was, now I'm a man of flesh and blood. I have a life beyond the grave. I found my heart. I can now be saved. No need to fear. I am not afraid. This man of sorrows took my pain. He comes to take away our sin and bear its marks upon his skin. I'm telling you this story because man of the tombs, I was. Okay. Father God, we thank you for the blessing of today, and we thank you that you are faithful every day, and I ask that you remind ourselves that we are free and that we are no longer in enslavement, and we do not have to live an oppressed life anymore. God, I thank you that even though the devil and his legions are real and that they are infiltrating our world from the highest areas to the common man, God, you are faithful in being able to free us If we will simply approach you and draw near to you, God, thank you for this truth. I thank you that this man's story, who we don't even know his name, Father, but you have kept it preserved just for a time as this, just for today, for your people to hear now, God. And it gives us a picture, and it gives us a reality, and it gives us a disturbance. And that disturbance is that God is more powerful than us, and he's more powerful than the forces of darkness, God. And we thank you that he can restore us, he can reconcile us, and Lord, you will do all of that in fullness one of these days, God. We thank you that you send the demons, you send the devil into retreat, and that one day the war will be completely done and over with. I pray this all in the name of the risen Christ. I pray it to you, our Father, with the help of your Holy Spirit who lives in us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.